Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror and what we now call the long war. I'm joined today by my friend, colleague, and uh, co-editor at the Long War Journal, Caleb Weiss. Caleb is also a senior researcher at the Bridgeway Foundation. Hello, Caleb. Thanks for thanks for jumping in today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me again. Although I need to stop thanking you. You need to stop my that. job. Yeah. It's no. Yep. You you're a partner here in crime. And uh, today we have a, a very special guest. Uh, he's a friend of Generation Jihad, Dr. Craig Whiteside. Craig is an associate professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, as well as a former U.S. Army officer. Craig is also the author of the ISIS Reader Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement, which I highly recommend. Um, and I can't remember when we did this, Craig, but we did a podcast on this with Tom Jocelyn a couple of years ago. Craig, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Generation Jihad. Oh, it's a, it's an honor to be back. Uh, I've been reading you since I probably was in in uh, in Iraq and uh, and ever since. And uh, I'm I'm really excited that you guys uh, brought Caleb aboard. Uh, he's also someone I've been following for a long time and uh, interacting with on our uh, kind of nerding out on uh, you know ancient uh, AQI, IS, other jihadi group uh, histories. So uh, great to see him uh, find a home here. Oh yeah, Caleb. Caleb's a gem. I, I'm glad he's he's uh, now my co-host on Generation Jihad. Well, for you were way too kind. <laughs> it was way too nice of, a, of an intro there. Well, uh, Caleb, it's it's well earned. You you know, well, I, I don't people don't know this, but uh, Caleb, I, when you contacted us years ago, um, you're still in. Were you in high school at the time? Uh, no, it's freshman year of college, so undergrad. I can't believe how long we work it on, and it's been, it really has been a, a, a pleasure and an honor to watch you grow into your own, you know, um, to, to become a colleague and, and become a friend. Um, it, I'm not, look, anyone that knows me knows that I am not one to blow smoke up anyone's ass. Um, <laughs> you <I> will? <laughs> for me to say that about the Caleb, that's, uh, I, I, I'd like to think that that's a, a high compliment, but it's one that you earned, Caleb. So, okay. uh, I, you know, I know we're heaping a lot of praise on you. Um, I'm sure if you could all see the video, Caleb's probably watching, but it, it's certainly well comfortable. <laughs> it's all right. We'll get beyond that. You know, Craig, you mentioned something, you know, the years ago, you know, how long we've been doing this. It's something that's really been sort of turning in my head. You know, like I've, I had a, a friend who was reviewing my work, uh, doing some work on um, these Al-Qaeda in Iraq slash Islamic State of Iraq years ago. And he's like, Bill, wow, I just can't believe how deep and how, you know, and, I, and it just, he's mentioning things that I hadn't thought about for you know, well over a decade. It's really strange when you've been in this business for a long time and you, you, you know, you get to uh, get to that point where you're covering different things. I mean, I've, you know, focused a lot of my coverage on Afghanistan and Pakistan over the last, I'd say, decade, but, you know, still have an eye on Iraq and Syria. It's such a difficult job. And it's just, it's really interesting when you say that, you know, you know, how long we've been in this business. And if you had any thoughts on that, Craig, I'm just curious to see what you think. You know, one thing I've really liked to follow is leadership and AQI, ISI, Islamic States, leaders, their history. The best source I've found, and we've cited you a lot, nicest reader on that, is the leaders. You you pay attention to personalities where I think, you know, I think it's something that the field doesn't do a great job of. They just are like, you know, how do you keep all these names straight? Like, look, this is important stuff. Like leadership of the the, the militant groups that are our adversaries, they really do shape you know, their tactics and strategies and they interact with this in, in that way. And, um, you know, the, you've, you, you, you probably, if you have one article, you've, you know, in the long war journal going all the way back into, you know, the, the thick of the fight. Uh, if you've got one article, you've got a hundred articles on this person was picked up. This person picked up at the time. It's, it seems insignificant, but then you can go back when they were famous later on and be like, Here's this person again. They keep popping up. You start doing patterns, and uh, it's been really helpful. You know, a little secret. Uh, I don't. I didn't start the Long War Journal for people to read. I started it for myself. It literally was my journal because I'm not good with remembering names, and these names are real difficult to remember. 
But yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, really. It's not even the real name sometimes, right? (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes they make it easy with these cunyads, right? Um, But yeah, it was really because, I mean, I I could go back and remember seeing Surajuddin Haqqani, right? Now the deputy emir and interior minister for the Taliban. Um, I remember seeing a U.S. wanted poster and he was like $75,000. I was like, ooh, interesting. Son of Surajuddin Haqqani, right? Let me track this guy. Then he gets designated. Then he's... You know, and he becomes, yeah. I think that's like a perfect example of, you know, sometimes it goes nowhere. Sometimes you look at these people, but you, you start building the, um, the database, so to speak, of these interesting characters. And um, we see them pop up by some of these names I've seen pop up in like Osama bin Laden's documents, right? And in other documents that come up, um, it's, it's just interesting business. But speaking of leadership, um, that's where we're going to start today. We're obviously Craig is an expert on the, the the premier expert on the Islamic State, and um, so we're we're going to take a deep dive into the Islamic State. And we'll, we'll let's start, Craig, with the recent news on the Islamic State. Over the weekend, Turkish President Recep uh, Erdogan he claimed that the the National Intelligence Organization killed the uh, current ISIS emir, Abu Hussein al-Husseini al-Qureshi. Um, he's, uh, Erdogan is said that they were tracking his movements for some time. U.S. official told uh, Jeff Seldon at Voice of America that Qureshi's death cannot be confirmed, and I'm going to put this in quotes, we have no information that would support this claim, end quote. Um, one of the things I've said for quite some time, well, over decades, maybe, um, these guys are vampires. Um, unless you drive a stake through the stake through the heart, chop off the head and expose them to sunlight, they aren't truly dead. And I've documented numerous cases of this over, over time. Erdogan's claim, which it, it, it seems awfully Pakistani to me, the Pakistanis uh, from between it, in the mid 2000s, the 2010s, when they needed good press, they would claim they killed a senior Al Qaeda or, Af- or, or um, Pakistani Taliban leader or mem- a leader of the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan or the Turkestan Islamic Party. That was when they would want to placate the Chinese. And then often these guys weren't really dead. Um, Anyway, that we don't really know what's going on here. Uh, it's and uh, at the time of this recording, uh, often these podcasts are put out uh, several days after they got to go through production. Danielle, our producer, does a fantastic job. Thank you, Danielle. She yeah, she's she's fantastic. So at the at the moment, we don't know. The U.S. officials are basically indicating eh, that we don't see evidence of this. Uh, what do you make of the, the Turkish claims, Craig? And uh, what do we know about the identity of, of the the latest? Qureshi, and do you think he's an effective leader? Yeah, those are some good questions. I, you know, first got to take, or one thing, having studied leadership, like I said, I've had a focus on leadership and how they shape their strategy, political worldview, since my dissertation, you know, back, you know, over over a decade ago, uh, Washington State. Um you got to take all of these things with a grain of salt. I mean, we haven't even done a good job as, as uh, analysts or even the, the IC in, you know, knowing exactly who these leaders were. There are times we had very good knowledge. There are times that we've struggled and even made mistakes. Abu Umar al-Baghdadi is a pretty famous one. You covered it back in the day. You even have like a, who is this guy? Who's right? You know, is he real? Is he not? So, you know, a Turkish claim on this with the U.S. not immediately confirming definitely would put a lot of you know big grain of salt large grains of salt on on this particular and then wait and see before jumping in on you know any kind of uh, analysis that said uh i do it made me think of a couple of things one when they announced you know the, the islamic state's lost two of its its very its very top leaders take quote-unquote caliph uh in the last year plus slightly plus that is a lot compared to the, the organization has been around for, you know, better part of 15 years plus uh, as the Islamic state movement and even longer before that. And, uh, you know, they've had leaders, but I mean, they've never lost leaders at this particular rate. It's quite dangerous for them, even though they've structured their leadership succession to be for these guys to be replaceable, even anonymous, even, you know, Hey, these guys are heroes, but they're not as important as the organization and and our ideology and and so forth. And that's what allows them to move on. But 
but still they they go to great lengths to protect their leaders and for for obvious reasons and so this is not good right and if this happened again this would be the third leader in 14 months and that is a rate we've never seen before at all abu bakr al-baghdadi was the leader of the organization for 9 years yeah. right and so this is this is a, this would be a high turnover it's already a high turnover it'd be an exceptionally high turnover rate. The other thing is when they announced Abu al-Hussein uh, as the replacement for Abu al-Hassan, who is the replacement for Abu Ibrahim, you know, all of this within a year plus, we didn't get the kind of details that they even at least pro-offer to support this anonymous person taking over really what's a global enterprise, right? I mean, it's it's a leap of faith. Now, these are religious folks, so so faith is not uh, you know, that's not foreign to them, the, the, a leap of faith, but um, they didn't even, you know, we don't know what experience this person had, where they worked. Usually they're Sharia uh, officials or judges, the chief judges, and they've worked in that realm so to give them the religious legitimacy to to be the caliph. We don't have that uh, information on them. We don't really have, we have, a you know, uh, the Husseini Qureshi traditional tie that IS has kind of made up for its caliph. But at the same time, there's no, uh, we don't have any kind of background. And it's not entirely sure that they're not out of first generation leaders that the United States knows, right? The United States can can confirm the death of all of these people to date because they've, they have biometrics on them from Camp Buka, right? Which is another topic altogether. Um, it's not clear that this latest person is as known as, let's say, the last leader, Abu Hassan. The U.S. was able to biometrically confirm his death, you know, at the hands of a Syrian militant group uh, in southwestern Syria, which is also the first time that, you know, U.S., you know, top tier forces weren't involved in the death of an IS leader going all the way back to the founders or Kawi, right? So there's a lot of red flashing lights, I think, for this organization, even if this is not true. Yeah. And I, I want to two real quick points. You know, clearly it's much more dangerous to keep your leadership based in Iraq and Syria than it is in Afghanistan, Pakistan. Look, Al Qaeda has only had three leaders since its right. founding. Um, yeah, it's very in, stable in comparison. 1998. I mean, how many U.S. presidents have we had since 1998? Uh, so, so Aubrey you know, was a co-founder. He was kind of like baked into the leadership succession, you know. Yeah, and Saif Al Adel, who we all believe to be the his successor, was one of the founding members of Al Qaeda and um, was on their committee since oh, I could probably at least 20, 30 years. So yeah, um, Caleb, any thoughts on uh, on this? Uh, yeah, so a couple. I, I think one thing that you know when we talk about rating. Abu al-Hussein as an effective leader, a lot of people have made the case that these anonymous leaders are sort of hurting the brand of, you know, not knowing who they are hurts the rank and file. But I kind of take a different approach to that, of that, uh, you know, what Craig said, these are religious people, they're very driven by faith. To them, what matters the most is, you know, religious credentials. If the Islamic State says they have their religious credentials, these people are going to take it at face value. And you've seen that across the board whenever the Islamic State announces a new caliph, all these different groups from around the world, you know, wholeheartedly just, you know, repledge their bayah to the new guy. You know, there is, you know, the, of course, there is things happening behind the scenes, but for what it's, you know, we can tell is it really doesn't matter who necessarily these guys are as long as, you know, they have their religious, religious credentials and that the Islamic State's, you know, central shura says that, says that this is our new guy. And that's really all that matters. And I think that's, you know, we can go down the rabbit hole from there of, of, you know, whether or not he's actually effectively leading. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily matter as much for the rank and file, if that makes sense. Um, especially as you've seen across Africa, where, you know, the Islamic State is expanding, you know, across the Sahel and DRC and Mozambique. You know, what's happening in Iraq and Syria doesn't really affect these guys at all. Um, you know, the Islamic State has, you know, command and control hubs around the world, these regional offices. Most of the, you know, interaction with quote unquote IS Center or IS Core is coming from those guys. 
So really, it doesn't matter as much of whether or not, you know, they're getting these micromanaged orders from the top more than it does that, you know, this guy has the religious credentials to be the caliph, which is what we want and care about anyway. If that rambling makes sense. Oh, it makes absolute sense, Caleb. I think that, you know, we see this but with Al-Qaeda as well. The, you know, I think a big analytical mistake is often well, Zawahiri was uncharismatic, or we didn't know who this Islamic state leader, so therefore right. these groups are in disarray. But it isn't what we think about it. It's what, the, as you noted, the rank and file thinks about it, about the regional leaders, the members of the Shura. You know, the, the, the rank and file in Al-Qaeda West Africa province swears allegiance to its local emir, and they're trusting them to trust the central leadership. That's the that's how that works. And I think there's a great misunderstanding, a great uh, you know, I, I I always balk at the the charisma. You know, look, I'm gonna be honest. Bin Laden didn't look very charismatic, charismatic to me. He looked like a mopey guy sitting in a cave, and so he slouched over. But that didn't mean that Al Qaeda members didn't see him as charismatic. Um, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, we saw him, what, once in a video and he's wearing a right watch loose on his wrist that he kind of looked like, a you know, didn't look very charismatic to me, but he certainly was able to spawn a movement. I don't put my perception of, of char charisma or what I think it's, it's what they what they do with the, the followers and the leader, the lower level leaders, the regional leaders. It's those are the guys that matter. And these neither of these groups has fallen apart with the death of their Amir. Sure, they have troubles, but um right. there's always know. internal squabbling too. Of course. There's always going to be internal squabbling over leadership or you know, direction a group is, you know, headed. But at the end of the day, it, it really only matters with these jihadis of you know, what is the religious credentials? What are we actually fighting for? We're trusting our local Amir who trusts the bigger Amir, and we go from there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, I believe it was said Saif al Adel was against the 9 11 attack, right? Did he resign from Al Qaeda? Did he break off and form his own group? No, he disagreed with strategy. I mean, just look at our government today. You think we look real united when the, when the rest of the world looks, looks to us? So, all right, let's, uh, let's move on. So the U.S. has targeted a number of uh, Islamic State leaders in both Iraq and Syria um, over the last several months. There's been some, uh, at least as the U.S. US Central Command has identified them as uh, high-value targets, senior leaders. One of them, uh, Abdul al-Hadi, Mahmoud al-Haji Ali, and Khalid Ayyid Ahmad al-Jabouri. Both of these individuals were identified as senior ISIS leaders, and they were involved in terrorist plots in Europe and the Middle, Middle East. I believe, and Caleb, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe one or two, a couple of these guys have been identified as the, the new batch of leaders. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe um, Al-Hajali, and then there was a Yemeni figure. That that's right. The, Ye yeah. right. Yeah. the Yemeni was also identified as such. Um, so they're basically new batch of leadership since the fall of the Islamic State's uh, physical caliphate. Craig, what do you think the, the current uh, leadership looks like um, in the Islamic State? Are they still organized? Um, do you agree with our assessment? Is it possible that is is the Islamic State moving towards a more geograph geographically dispersed model, much like Al Qaeda? Caleb and I have a thought about that. Um, we think we have yeah. seen some evidence. What What are your thoughts on that, Craig? Yeah, I think um, you know it's hard to know, even though you know a lot of us study these movements, organizations, and watch how they shift and turn. I'll be honest, I've gotten surprised many times by the turns that they've taken, their insistence on external operations, as you pointed out, which tends to, you know, that tends of all the jihadi or extremists, let's just say extremist problems that the U.S. is worried about for its regional stability or its allies and partners, you know, it's it's these it's the desire to do external ops that gets the most attention. Like that rises you, you know. That's why Al Shabaab is higher on the you know targeting list and priority list for let's say Africom than maybe IS West Africa sometimes. Even though I think IS West Africa is the more potent threat to a very you know uh, Nigeria, which is a 
you know, partner that that we have and an important U.S. national interest. Uh, it's that external. And yet they continue to do this. Right. They continue to to do that. And it's just baked into their ideology and their their DNA. And so um, we've also seen these reports coming out about ISK from the CENTCOM commander about, you know, that. It's possible that the U.S. has disrupted, you know, plot, you know, plots uh, for external operations emanating out of ISK, and that uh, maybe inspirational plots, but certainly um, there's also uh, concerns that they could develop operational capability. I think the quote from Sencom was, uh, you know, within six months. Of course, we've heard that before as well, but. Unlike Jelani and other groups that have kind of shied away from from that in order to get off of the get the spotlight off of them, you know the these Islamic State particularly and I think Al Qaeda aspirationally do want to continue to have that external operation capability and then you know the U.S. counter targeting of these leaders that you mentioned in Syria, for example. Um, it does it, it's very typical of the IS model, which another reason that the the killing the caliph is in the lar- in the in the kind of frequency that we've seen is unusual because normally they have that second tier of leaders who are actually running the organization, the delegated committee. They are typically also responsible for that external operation, monitoring media, things that still are working within uh, a much degraded Islamic state. You know, hammering that tier below the the caliph, which I. As I understand it, these targets were in that high level tier show you just, again, the the punishment that IS is receiving in both Iraq and Syria, which is making it, I think it's putting a strain on what Caleb mentioned earlier, which I think is a thread that is worth kind of pulling on, which is how does Islamic State, in contrast to Al-Qaeda, run a global enterprise that was more centralized, I think, or at least attempted to be more centralized in managing the affiliates than Al-Qaeda ever could. I mean, I think Al-Qaeda wanted to, but just couldn't. Islamic State tried to put in both infrastructure and guidelines and even selecting leaders of Yemen or uh, IS Yemen or IS West Africa, right, with Shakao, the whole Shakao mess. Um, <laughs> it's impossible for them to do that right now with the, the pressure that's on them in Iraq and Syria. And it's, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a lot of money on it, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some cracks, you know, as we teach at the war college, what's this group center of gravity? It is the the, the leadership in Iraq and Syria, yeah. I think, more so than Al Qaeda. I concur. I mean, that that to me does because they, you know, one of the things, the reason that the, the Islamic State has major disagreements with other jihad non-Islamic state jihadist groups is because they want everyone to swear allegiance to, to their would-be caliph. I mean, that's a key part of all of this. So Al-Qaeda really is organized to just serve as a the base of the jihad. That's literally the name, what Al-Qaeda is. And it learned once its leader, central leadership was targeted in the drone campaign in, in northwestern Pakistan uh, that it had to in, in the late 2000s late 2000s that you know we saw this in the bin laden documents they're saying we got to start moving people out and then we start we see people like nasser al-wahashi bin laden's former aide-de-camp he becomes uh the general manager for al-qaeda and he's not based in afghanistan pakistan we see you know the current emir of aqim as well as shabab al-qaeda in the islamic Maghreb, as well as shabab are are in the line of succession according to the united nations uh sanctions and monitoring team and i think it's gonna be harder the Islamic State to move towards this model, but it's probably one that they need to move to if they want to rem- remain a viable organization. It has to, because this is the key, I think, what we're seeing here in Iraq and Syria, the U.S. still has capacity in this area, which it doesn't have in Afghanistan, Pakistan anymore to target al-Qaeda's senior leadership. We're able to go after the Islamic State's leadership in Iraq and Syria because we have we have the ability to base troops in the reason we have u.s troops in syria we have u.s troops in iraq and we have an actual partner in iraq that is willing to go after the islamic state in syria it's a little more complicated but we do have partners there that we could work through um i, I think I've, I've been following the centcom statements they, they every at the end of every month they issue a statement they've been executing anywhere from like 30 to 50 raids a month 
uh, against yeah. the Islamic State. At least the last several months, last like three to four months, they've been averaging somewhere in that. And believe it or not, I was shocked by this. There's more raids occurring in Iraq than there are in Syria, but it does seem like the senior leaderships uh, are being targeted more inside of Syria. Caleb, I got a question for you. Like, how do you see this contrast with with Al Qaeda and the way these kind of global enterprises? It's some, the, the contrast to that, it, I think, is pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I think both of you touched on this. So that you know, AQ has always been more globally dispersed. Um, they're, I mean, their whole thing is playing the long game. They don't necessarily need to have all of these groups pledge allegiance to them publicly, at least or you know be fully integrated within al-qaeda you know their command and control network it's 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 more it's beyond that al-qaeda literally is what bill said is this the base it is there to foment support instigate whatever islamic insurgencies around the world um so they work through the locals and most of these groups are you know tied into the local aspect but at the same time their top leaders as bill mentioned in shabab and aqim or more than likely within al-Qaeda's, you know, globalized command structure. Post the drone strike campaign of the late 20, you know, 2000s and early 2010s, al-Qaeda definitely had to move people around the world to act as, you know, this, you know, what we would call al-Qaeda core or al-Qaeda central. Um, and as, you know, you touched on, Craig, the Islamic State was never about that. It was always about the centrality of the organization, of we are one, Everyone must subsume under us, under this ca you know caliphate. But, and I don't disagree that the center of gravity is and will probably always be Iraq and Syria. That is just their their bread and butter. That is what they they've based their legitimacy on, their legacy on as well. But you know we do see sort of indications that you know the Islamic State, due to this pressure, has already made you know some sort of you know commitments to move leadership more abroad. And that's what we were talking about earlier with these regional offices. So regional offices like, you know, the, you know, Al-Qarar office in Somalia, which sort of acts as this command and control hub for the Islamic State central leadership to, you know, act somewhat unilaterally in conducting operations or overseeing operations throughout much of East and Southern Africa. And I think, you know, the former leader of Al-Qarar, Bilal Sudani, this Sudanese, you know, Islamic State leader, he was killed recently in a U.S. raid. You know, not only was he overseeing all these operations in, you know, eastern and southern Syria, including, you know, actual attacks, the movement of money, stuff like that, is he was also tied to the the Abbey Gate suicide, you know, bombing in Afghanistan during the, the withdrawal. Um, the U.S. said that there is enough evidence that he, you know, directed that fund funding. He, you know, provided some sort of support for that cell, which to me indicates that Bilal Sidani was more than just, you know, this regional Islamic state leader in Africa. He fits the profile more of, of an Islamic state central leader of, you know, obviously this is huge outsized importance outside of, you know, a quote unquote designated AO. To me, that screams way bigger than the organization. And I think, you know, there are others out there like him that we may not know yet, at least in the public sphere, who are acting in that similar role. So whereas the Islamic State will always be, you know, at least ideologically, rhetorically, whatever, focused and based in Iraq and Syria, they're going to have these, you know, centralized nodes elsewhere around the world of necessity. You know, just as Al-Qaeda learned they had to do that, the Islamic State seems to be learning that. Caleb, you know, you, you had mentioned the unknowns here, right? We don't know who Al-Haji Al-Ali and Al-Jabouri and Al-Yemeni, you and I remember when they're being killed, you know, we're going, who are these guys? There's nothing out there. They, these guys look like ghosts to us and we're trying to find out information. Now it could be, you know, if we had the real names, it might be more, it might be e easier to find. CENTCOM issued minimal information on them. So we're all left guessing, are, were these important guys? I'm, I'm guessing they are given particularly the fact in a couple of these raids, the U.S. put uh, boots on the ground. Syria is a very dangerous place to operate for many reasons. Uh, so that indicates to me. And I also want to mention something, you know, I think that, Craig, you touched on this, you know, the, and this is a big analytical problem, another big analytical problem that I always, uh, somewhat bothers me. You know, we're focused on, not we here, in the, not the three of us, but you see this a lot from political and military and intelligence leadership. The, the focus is, well, 
they haven't launched any attacks or the attacks are down or sure that's an indicator of something. But to me, what always bothers me about the group, these groups is the, them building capacity. Um, the, the biggest, the most important thing to, to both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State is to reestablish the caliphate. And the, you know, the tactic of a terror attack against the West is just that. It's a tactic. It's one we have to fight. But the, to me, the, always the greater danger is them taking territory, overthrowing governments, you know, taking control of countries like Afghanistan, like parts of Mali, like parts of, of Somalia. That to me is always the greater danger and one that just seems to be ignored. And, um, and, and instead we just focus on, well, were they able to launch attacks against us or not? Right. I mean, just to jump in here real quick, I, I mean, shout out to Thomas Jocelyn and David Gartenstein Ross and their book. Um, they talk about, you know, yes, everyone always talks about whether or not Al Qaeda has launched an external attack or whether or not they're, they're able to launch these external attacks abroad. But it was never wholly about that. Doing attacks abroad has always been a means to justify the ends, which is the collapse of these local regimes to generate or, you know, or drive the U.S. out of the Middle East, drive their allies out to reestablish the caliphate. It was never the prime focus of these groups It is a means to, to do the local. It's where this whole dichotomy of local and global is kind of messed up of like, we're looking at it as Western analysts and not as jihadis look at it, which is it's all combined into one fight. Yeah. Right. They don't make the distinction between CT and counterinsurgency on their, their yeah. side insurgency like we do. Right. Is this CT or coin? You know, like they're like, whatever, this is the same thing, man. We're, we're, we integrate these well, as, as have we at times. But I agree. There's this weird circle where like they're doing external ops, which then justifies us to focus on them for external ops. Uh, you know, to, to preventing external terrorist attacks. Um, it's not sure. It's not. It's not. It's not. That's not their main reason for being right. It's more the the state projects or the local projects, as we've been talking about. Uh, but at the same time, like that's the most danger to us is is un, you know de destabilizing regional structure. Let's say the Middle East or anywhere, Philippines. You know, you name it. Africa. And, uh, you know, and yet that's what we don't talk about, right? We justify our, our presence, action, raids, all about trying to sh turn these things off. And it just seems to be like missing the forest for the trees. But then they help us out by doing external operations. And then it, it kind of justifies our focus, even though it's the wrong focus. I, I don't, sometimes it, it's hard. Exactly. Like it, it is ignoring, they're building. And as they gain more territory, they build the ca more capacity to, to conduct those external attacks. That's what we should always be worried about. Like Zalmay Khalizad recently came out and said, well, there's no threat from Afghanistan because uh, they haven't launched any attacks. Um, at the Long War Journal, we rebutted that. And we note that Al-Qaeda is regathering there. And, you know, it's the long-term threat. We, we're, we're looking at the immediate, the, that attack that might happen tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. We want to be targeting we want to capture or kill these external operations planners but that's you know that's just the you know going after the tactic of terrorism but if you really want to solve this problem you got to stop these groups from metastasizing and taking that's, control that's u.s policy in a nutshell though it's always been more reactive yeah. than it is you know proactive yeah and, and we wonder why we get 9-11 and yeah go ahead craig sorry you look at the the previous administration, the Obama administration, you know, really didn't understand IS when it came up, thought it was more like the Taliban or, you know, that it wasn't, you know, they weren't that concerned that they were taking land. It's when they started doing external operations yeah. or killing hostages or doing genocide. They're like, oh, no, we really have to, to intervene here. And that, I think that's to your point, right? We constantly make this mistake uh, about these state building projects as being, you know, possibly you know, innocuous or, or not necessarily a threat. And, and I, you know, I don't certainly from a liberal international perspective, the U S should, should be fighting these as the authoritarian, you know, kind of regimes that with poor human rights records that we would anybody else in the state structure, even though these are non-states. Yeah, absolutely. And they went, the Islamic state was JV until they got promoted to the varsity for sure. So well, um, this is uh, Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, uh, and my, joined by my co-host, Caleb Weiss. And uh, today is our, we have our special guest is Dr. Craig Whiteside, um, a associate professor at, of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and author of the ISIS Reader, 
milestone text of the Islamic State movement. Uh, again, I highly recommend it. Give it a read. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't get a chance to read uh, too many books at this point because I've read so much during the day for to try and stay. But that was one book in the last several years that I actually read cover to cover to cover, Craig. Great stuff. Oh, thanks for that. No, no, it's uh, it's it's. And we wrote know. it for people like you, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and with help from from people like you, for sure. Much appreciated. So let's uh, let's take a look. Uh, the, you have a lot of reporting lately. The Islamic State um, in core uh, the Khorasan province, of course, that's Islamic State, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Central Asia. Um, the Washington Post uh, recently wrote an article where it talks about how the Islamic State is increasing its capacity within with inside Afghanistan, and it's uh, facilitating and plotting. A global attacks again this gets back to of course everybody loves that right that, that's that makes it the real threat um of course the islamic state is the enemy of the taliban and al-qaeda so that does complicate things there for the islamic state yet even though it's the underdog in afghanistan it's still finding some capacity to, to do this craig uh, th does this comport with what you're seeing on how the islamic state is reorganizing since the, the the fall of its empire in iraq and syria how do you rate this threat do you, is this a significant threat as was put out there by the the washington post is it an emerging threat uh is it a nascent threat yeah i think that's a tough question um I think I've always thought the Islamic State had tough sledding there because of the dominance of the Taliban and their association with Al Qaeda, which, you know, after 2013 14 makes them, you know, mortal enemies. I, the one thing from studying the Islamic State I've found is they're quite strategic in the sense like they have always prioritized the near, even, you know, the near enemy. But in this case, they, they've that typically tends to be rival jihadi groups. That's something I know Caleb's looked a lot into in his research, uh, but, you know, they really do focus on that. So Afghanistan is a tough place because it's got, you know, a multiplicity of, of rivals for them. And yet it seems to be the franchise outside of Africa that's doing the best, right? You know, Iraq, if you look at the stats, is plummeting and hasn't hit bottom yet. And yet, um, Despite the the you know tough sledding in Afghanistan with you know the Taliban, who's pretty ruthless against them, as well as Al Qaeda, who probably you know is helping the Taliban in that regard. I think the concerns that Sencom has is is valid. Um, even if I'm less sure about their capability to do external ops out of Afghanistan, I think. I think I'm always wondering, like, what exactly that means. The Islamic State Khorasan province it has a lot going against. As you said, it's it's tough sledding. Um, it doesn't have a state sponsor. It doesn't control territory. You know, it's my way or the highway approach doesn't win it allies with other local jihadist groups. You know, although I do think there there may be some advantages that it may uh, that it has, particularly with groups like the Turkestan Islamic Party, I think that and the IMU and the Taliban is sort of playing patty cakes with the, particularly with the Chinese government while the Uyghurs are, you know, put into basically into uh, re-education or concentration camps. You know, there, there could be some poaching going on there. We've seen some evidence that that's happening, but that's a limited. I do, uh, you know, but it certainly, it piques my interest. And if the Islamic State is, is able to devote some capacity to look at that, it has to make you wonder, you know, what are its capabilities? The reason Afghanistan is is also tough sledding is kind of where the the starting position for for IS in Af in a, in you know Khorasan versus where it was in Iraq and Syria. Like so, um, a partner and I, you know, partially inspired by some of the work Caleb did uh, earlier on on Ansar al, al Sunna, and and hopefully we can circle back to that. But we wrote a paper about the political consolidation of Islamic State in Iraq before 2014, right? The, the time, the period that people don't really look at. And, and we went all the way back to when they were, you know, before our AQI, when they're Tawhid wal Jihad, right? Under Zarqawi, just starting out. They, they, they progressed through what we just called, you know, different phases of consolidation. First, they cooperated with other groups. Then they competed when they became Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's kind of like a signal. The reason they did so many name changes is kind of signals their, their kind of shift from cooperation straight cooperation across the board with anybody to competing with the other jihadi groups, including Ansar al-Islam slash Sunnah, 
And then eventually, once they gained enough strength, became dominant in their local sphere in Iraq, then they were coercive. Like, you have to join us or else. And then they were, you know, they've all, they were always, you know, quite violent in that. Con- it, was, it, was, it wasn't always a peaceful competition, but um, nonetheless, they, they still competed with people, but not necessarily uh, violently. But, but it's when they get into a coercive phase that everyone understands that they're out for them and they're going to dominate and become hegemonic. You saw the same thing in Syria. In Afghanistan, they start off as the underdog, right? The Taliban is the one that's hegemonic, or at least has aspirations of hegemonic, you know, complete hegemonic worthy Islamic Emirate. Um, we'll tolerate you, you know, weird uh, Salafis, you know, in this corner here until we until we until we realize you actually have uh, you're going to challenge us. So as long as they just started so far behind, it's just amazing they've gotten to where they have, considering they didn't have the advantages that they did in Iraq of this very patient, slow, phased, um, you know, uh, consolidation approach. Yeah, I, I concur. They they started, I mean, it began as basically cast off from Al-Qaeda, from the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, and, uh, you know, disaffected members of those groups, as well as the Afghan Taliban. So they were all, they weren't the influential leaders within these groups. As you noted, they started as the underdog. They immediately clashed with the Taliban, like within months after their formation, they were fighting pitch battles and the Taliban wiped the floor with them. Obviously not enough that, that it's eliminated, but you know, that, that's where I get back to, despite all of those challenges of the, you know, it's, it's significant underdog status. It certainly uh, gives me uh, a lot of concern that there, there may be something there, but you know, at the end of the day, I look at what the Taliban has, um, how it's come on top in this conflict, the fact that it's defeated, you know, the super uh, defeated the United States in afghanistan that's that's really really difficult message for the uh islamic state to deal with there might be some comparative analysis there with this underdog story compared to you know a more hegemonic jihadi force in a certain area and one area that you know people might be able to look at for comparison between ice you know Khorasan is the sahel where the islamic state was definitely the underdog there when they first emerged in 2015 i mean the jihadi scene in the sahel was exclusively al-qaeda until you know they broke off and even then you know it wasn't until 2016 ish that the islamic state actually recognized these guys as their branch in the sahel and even then they weren't given you know province status they weren't given provincial status until 2019 you know and then since then they've had ebbs and flows with al-qaeda and then now they're basically controlling an entire province of mali i mean this is you know kind of a similar underdog story where this one group had to face all these hegemonic challenges with al-qaeda there were definitely clashes between them and al-qaeda that you know both sides won some battles both sides lost some battles and then now the islamic state and the sahel is on this upswing that has you know wholly usurped al-qaeda from one province of mali very interesting caleb i just think that the you know, the Taliban has certain things that the, well, you know, we're talking about dispersed groups. Fair, but like if you look at northern Mali, like the state isn't there. In most parts right. of northern Mali, al-Qaeda certainly is the government. I mean, you look at the desert of Timbuktu or Kidal, it's al-Qaeda. So in a similar right. case where they do have sort of, they are the state. In most cases, you do have sort of the same things the Taliban are doing or were doing at that time. Al-Qaeda was also doing in Mali. Uh, so it, I don't know. It's not a one-for-one one comparative. Definitely something there that you know scholars or analysts, researchers, whatever, could probably look at. Of you know, the Islamic State has been underdogs not only in Afghanistan but elsewhere, but yet still survive and still be able to be on the upswing despite massive challenges from a rival jihadi group. And I think one thing that works against the Islamic State is everyone, every country in the region is willing to work with the Taliban against the Islamic State, China, Russia. Pakistan, basically same thing Iran. in the Sahel. I mean, you basically have state forces and non-state forces, especially non-state forces, working with Al-Qaeda against the Islamic State. Sure. Yeah. Well, that then certainly, um, if you, certainly an interesting uh, research project. Yeah, right? there you go. See, Shout yeah. out to whoever wants to take it. Yeah, that's what it sounds like right there. <laughs> Once you write that paper, whoever you are, you, maybe you get on the Generation Jihad and we could talk about it. Absolutely.
Craig, you have any thoughts on that before we uh, we move on? The last question. No, I, I you know it just it just reminds me that uh, one don't underestimate yeah. um, Islamic State because you know they yes they had advantages both in Syria and Iraq that other groups didn't have organizational experience etc money um, and and you know they kind of cemented that. And that was, you know, fundamental in their ability to establish a caliphate and elevate their leader to a caliph status. And then, you know, and then claim uh, at least partial, you know, you know, a competitor in the, the global jihad enterprise, which was new for them. So everything's always changing. It's always different from different places like Caleb's talking about. Yeah. Um, but their ability to to survive as an underdog is Caleb. Caleb made a really great analogy there. Um it is surprising. Like you just, you just can't, even though with all that odds stuck against them, you know, there's something there, whether it's their organizational skills or their financing or something that allows them to be competitive, even when they're an underdog, as you put it. Yeah. And I, w- I would add branding to that too. I think they really do appeal to the more red blooded jihadi, right? You know, the jihad now, the caliphate now crowd really does seem to gravitate. To, towards yeah, I mean, I think that's that's your point with those disaffected Central Asians in Afghanistan, right? Of so these these guys really want to attack Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or China, yeah. But the Taliban's not going to allow that. But right, not now. Else who is going to allow yeah. that? Yeah. Islamic right. State, exactly. And that's what gives them the ability to um, to survive and and perhaps I mean you know it's a it's a long war we'll see if they'll thrive we'll, we'll, we could certainly have this be interesting to have this conversation three years from now five years from now um, I'd rather them all be defeated and I could move on get a different career but I don't see that happening <laughs> definitely maybe I could flip burgers instead uh, that would be nice so uh, Craig tell us about what your current research interests um and i hear you're doing a, you have an upcoming project on answer all islam slash answer all suna um talk about talk a little bit about this I, I think this will spawn a whole conversation in itself okay uh yeah i appreciate that i mean it, we're, we're kind of building off this paper I, that i just referenced which was uh the po- political consolidate we called it state accompli instead of fate accompli political consolidation of the islamic state and uh that was published in Studies in Conflict and Terrorism a little over a year ago uh, online. And, um, you know, from that, uh, as I mentioned, it kind of some of the inspiration of that comes from some of Caleb's early work and um, on, on Ansar al-Islam. So one of the one of the projects I'm working on under Mohammed Hafez, who's a, who's a NPS researcher here, who's, who's pretty prolific in this space. I'm sure you've read, read his stuff, uh, Suicide Bombers in Iraq. Uh, we're working a, uh, a workshop under him on the dog that didn't bark. Like, why didn't Ansar al-Islam slash Ansar al-Sunnah slash eventually Ansar al-Islam again? Why didn't they join Islamic State? You know, and and it's kind of the reverse of that political consolidation uh, paper, which is you know the the outlier throughout our entire research in the in the paper of of all of these other groups, Islamic Army. You got people you you were running up against. Bill, when you were embedded in Iraq multiple times, uh, you know, Mujahideen Army, all the different jihadi groups of different flavors from, you know, hardcore Salafi all the way down to kind of Muslim Brotherhood-ish and others. Um, you know, the the once we dove into the political character of them, it was really interesting to see how some of them kind of splintered apart. And, you know, some of them went to the Sawa Awakening and then others went to um, actually went to early IS. Um, and then, um, and then the question, you know, we, we tend to beat up IS for not listening to Al Qaeda central leadership, something I know you've, uh, and your, your colleague had, had spent a lot of time, uh, thinking about and talking about in Longmore Journal, you know, why didn't, uh, Ansar al-Islam slash Ansar al-Sunnah listen to Al Qaeda's repeated, Kind of, hey, you need to. We need to unify jihad in Iraq, and they just wouldn't, you know. So why was that? What? Why didn't they see the benefit of, of kind of joining forces? Because they cooperated a lot. They collaborated a lot. We know that we have a lot of evidence for that. Um, there are even people who were in both organizations at the same yeah. time, which I have trouble getting my head around. And so the complexities of them are, are, are crazy. And so that's that's one one of my projects. The other one. Uh, you won't be surprised by this, is trying to go back and reconstruct the foundation of Islamic State. So just going back into 
you know, kind of the history and archives and looking at different perspectives, like how did the Islamic State form and appoint Abu Omar, this anonymous leader, this circles back to kind of the beginning of our discussion on why they, why, how do they get away with appointing a, a, anonymous leaders? And then how, you know, the, their transition from Mujahideen Shura Council slash AQI into, you know, the establishment of the Islamic State, you know, it, it's kind of been covered in bits and pieces, but we don't have the full story. Like we don't understand why Abu Hamza was replaced, you know, was a quick replacement for Zarqawi, but then he steps down in the formation of the Islamic State. And then the the various, you know, political aspects of that, him being a foreigner in Iraq, and then them appointing Abu Umar, who was Iraqi. But 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 because of a lot of the uncertainty and clarity and misinformation about who Abu Umar was and why he was selected and how that all went down in the six months after Zarqawi was killed in 2006, to me, is really fundamental to understanding Islamic State. And that's that's my other project. It, it's it's almost there. We've gotten all of these threads. The only, I mean, there's some secrets we're hoping to get out that we've we've kind of stumbled across. But I tell you, the the really interesting thing is that we kind of think that the Islamic State is this like okay, we captured people, they went to Bukha, then we left, and then they got out of Bukha, and they came, and they finished the Islamic State. And it's actually a much more complex story about that. And I think you know this. It was a little bit of a more of a revolving door in Camp Bukha, and we oh, were capturing yeah. these guys over and over again. And you were two to three times sometimes. The, the top leadership in AQI in 2006, really the Mujahideen Shura Council at that time, they're actually, that's how they described themselves in their interrogation, was is the same leadership in 2014 with with certain you know uh with certain exceptions and to me that's just stunning on the con and it kind of helps us understand the continuity of this this movement over time i'm going to ask you a quick question now my understanding was that the, this is on the islamic state uh, of iraq that uh abu Masri was the war minister and was killed alongside of uh, abu umar al-baghdadi uh, back in 2010 is that correct yeah, that's right. You know, but that was a step down for him because he had led yeah, Al Qaeda in right. Iraq, and essentially, even though there were other groups that joined Islamic State of Iraq when it was formed in October two thousand six, you know, eighty to ninety percent of it was the AQI right. because it was the most dominant group that there was. Um, so that's just we really haven't peeled that back. You know, why? Yeah, you know, and in fact, the American military kind of sometimes alluded to the fact that. Um, you know, Abu Hamza was still the guy in charge and, and Abu yes. Umar was just kind of this kind of fake figurehead stuff. That's not how internal documents or other, even the other jihadi groups talk about. And in some cases, Al-Qaeda, even you, you, some of the Abbottabad documents, you know, understand that it's Abu Umar who's, who's running the group. And it, it, we just can't get over the fact that the foreigner took this demotion to be part of the state project, which was in a lot of ways very different from AQI. I mean, if I remember correctly, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I looked at, you know, these docs related to the war, but I believe at least one of the docs you're referring to is Al-Qaeda is talking about it's more important for them to have this political face, have this political movement than it is to have that, you know, central leadership over the Mujahideen Shira Council. And I think that says a lot of, you know, where Al-Qaeda's headspace was and has been for decades and something that, you know, sort of written off about them of, this is also their, you know, MO, like what they're fighting for. And here you are back in 2006 of them telling, you know, Al-Masri, you know, take a back seat. This, this political project's more important way back then. Yeah. And it, you know, it shows maybe the consensus, you know, the decision making. To me, it's an insight to the decision making, both externally from Al-Qaeda Central, but also internally, like the group. You know, I think Al Qaeda is kind of shouting things from the the top bleacher, from you know where they were at. But it's the group that's on the ground struggling with not the U, just the U.S., not just the U.S. relentless counterterrorism pressure. It's like how do we get as many people on board with this political project, the tribes, all this other stuff? And obviously they failed, right? I mean, it, it didn't work. But that's because they're tougher problem. And if you go back and look at the documents and from that perspective, you realize what Sarkawi is trying to do, you know, uh, with the bombing of Samara, you know, the mosque in Samara and stuff like that. They're all trying to figure out ways to unite the jihadists and failing in some ways, largely because they all have different views. That's one thing we found in that project, the political consolidation project was like every one of these groups doesn't have the same vision of what uh, some kind of 
Sunni leadership of either parts or all of Iraq would look like and, you know, what there would have for inspiration. And, you know, obviously the Islamic State has the one that they actually put into to being. So we have a better understanding of that. But there was six or seven, eight other competing visions of what Sunni Iraq should look like or Iraq under Sunni leadership should look like, either one. And they kind of never really differentiated those, even though one's realistic and one is not. Quick point on what we're talking about with Antar Islam and Antar Sunni and these these bin Laden docs is there are some interesting docs in there talking about, you know, it's it's you know, either bin Laden or Atiyah Libby talking to you know, Abdullah Shafi, you know, the leader of Ansar Islam, Ansar Asuna, of like, why aren't you joining? Like, why do you not join this group even though you're cooperating? And he's just like straight up like, I don't like these guys. Like they do everything wrong. They're they're too extreme. I don't want to join them. But yet you still have this complete back and forth for several of these docs of why aren't you joining? Because they suck. Why aren't you joining? I don't like them. And I think that's a super funny and kind of interesting dichotomy there. And really, I think really excited for this paper because Antar Islam is sort of this last unwritten node of the Iraqi jihadi insurgency that really has more outsized influence than what people really give it you know, credit for. Yeah, it was a significant force in the North. I mean, that for certain. Yeah. The interesting thing is Antar Islam didn't have any different tactics than AQI. Like, I mean, they're, that's the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. I mean, they did suicide bombings. They used foreign terrorists. They were Al-Qaeda affiliated. I mean, they really didn't have any excuse. Um, it was, it, yeah, I don't know what the answer is because we haven't finished the research, but it, it, it's it's possible that personality-wise, you know, one, you know, one, let's just say one hypothesis is that, you know, Zarqawi came through Ansar al-Islam and they kind of sponsored him early before the invasion, right? And that's obviously been talked about. I think it was in the Colon Palace speech, ta-da-da. U.S. even targeted him up there, uh, you know, in the early stages of the invasion, but missed him because he wasn't there. He'd already moved on, uh, as we understand it. But uh, at some point, and this is this is related to both projects I talked about, the foundation of the Islamic State. The, the Islamic State is largely founded by or, or led, and Mujahideen Shirk Council is large, in 2006, is largely led by Ansar al-Islam veterans who defected to the what would become the Islamic State. And they are very high prolific, very much ran the media, ran the Mujahideen Shirk Council. Um, they were kind of a cohort that came over. And I think that... that instigated a lot of blad but they just kind of thought zerkawi had came in and stolen all of their big names and they they never really relinquished that grudge and as you mentioned shafi's run the organization so i think 2010 he finally gets captured and that kind of maybe is where islamic state is able to start finally kind of you know stealing more of their guys you know finish the job they started that reminds me of a doc, document from the Bin Laden files from Pakistan where Al-Qaeda's, I believe it was, uh, I can't remember who who wrote it. It was either Atiyah, Abdul Rahman, or, um, yeah, or Al-Libi. Al-Libi, yeah. Right, where he was saying, hey, either stop poaching. He's telling the TTP, saying, stop poaching our, um, trying to poach fighters from our Al-Qaeda companies. Um, so that this this is something that does happen. I mean, the TTP obviously operated under the umbrella of Al Qaeda and the and the Afghan Taliban in many ways. But even then, there was always between these groups. You see that where they're they're trying to you know again poach leadership to get the best thing for its groups. Now, Craig, there's one thing I might have a small disagreement with you on here. Yeah. You had said that the Islamic State project of uh, you know, had failed. And I would argue it only failed because of the surge. Um, right. They controlled right. significant portions of well, oh, yeah. Anbar, Diyala, oh, uh, Salahuddin, and Nineveh province before the surge. Um, so I would argue what they did, and obviously they were doing it in conjunction with other jihadist groups and other Sunni, you know, the Islamic Army of Iraq and whatnot. But a lot of that was rolled up under the Mujahideen Shura Council uh, by that point. And uh, I would I would argue they were pretty successful. It only took the U.S. intervention. It be only because of the U.S. intervention did it not really succeed. And then they really, after the U.S. withdrew within what three years, they uh, they roared back on the scene, start taking over Anbar Province, and that reminds me of a. Of, I remember seeing a video. I did a um, Tom Jocelyn and I did a ba- debate with Peter Bergen and can't remember. Admiral, it was Admiral Mullen's chief of staff, former chief of mm-hmm. staff. And I remember Peter Bergen saying to me, 
Bill, Al-Qaeda in Iraq is defeated. Uh, you saw it. You were there. And this was sometime in like 2012, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And my response was, that was in 2008, right? That was the, when right. I was in Mosul. Like, things are changed. I remember watching a video from Anbar in, let's say it was late 2011, early 2012, where watching them organize hundreds of fighters with captured Iraqi Humvees rolling into- That's Haditha, yeah. That's Haditha, the Haditha yeah, the yeah. Haditha yeah. raid, right? You saw, you got the dry run for the Islamic State's takeover. That's how these yeah. how quickly these things change. That's the ebb and flow of jihad that we always talk about. But shout out to Craig's paper. He has an amazing paper on the Haditha raid. Oh, I did, Craig, I didn't know that. I you have to I have you have to point me to that. I got to read that because the black ops. I I uh, I remember writing that up and posting the video and being like, people, you need to look at this. This is what's on the horizon. Everyone ignored yeah. it. Yeah, I was writing my dissertation at the time, and I watched that Haditha raid go down, and I'm like, oh, I, I'm no longer doing a postmortem on, like you were saying, like we, you know, I was there when when kind of the surge really hit its stride, and, you know, violence went from just the very peak to almost the exact opposite, and it was, it was quite interesting, but you know, one of the things we found in that political consolidation paper, and I don't think there's any, we don't have any uh, daylight between us on this. I mean, they they got their butts kicked. They kind of said, oh, hey, let's get back and reset. But it was that tactical, it was that, hey guys, from a strategic perspective, we need to go back, reset, and 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 then kind of survive until the until the US leaves. We know they're leaving. Um, one of the things we found was that the awakening, as much as we hailed it as like, you know, hey, we peeled these guys off of AQ, a lot of them are actually insurgents, not necessarily yes. tribal people they're kind of tribal people but they're also you know it, it, depending on where they were they were actually you know former islamic army or whatever and, and i know that just from my own personal experience our guys were all islamic army who kind of flipped and just didn't listen to their parent organization and became part of this awakening grassroots but they were really in for controlling the local dynamics of where they lived right yeah. uh but you know, one of the things we realized was that the awakening split a lot of these jihadi groups. And for every group that went to the, you know, the pro-government, which wasn't a great move for them in the long run, because the government didn't really give them a lot of love and left them out kind of hanging out to dry, as did we. But when it split these other insurgent groups, the other half had nowhere to go and they they didn't want to join the government. So where do you think they went? Yep. And we didn't ever, ever pay attention to that. We don't really have the curiosity to get like, well, what happens to the other half of his Islamic army who decides there's no way they're joining the government or the Sawa or any other thing that's even close to it? Yeah, they, they're easy pickings for IS to recruit. And IS, if they were have been one thing, it, they're serial, you know, stealers of other people's, you know, folks. They're really good at it. I did a lot of embeds with... um military units uh, that were uh, working with the awakening and boy, you always kept one eye open when you were with those guys. I mean, they were, like you said, it was a mixed bag. Some of them were tribal, local tribal leaders, some guys just looking for money. And some of these guys were hardcore insurgents who just, it was either wanted their, um, damn, I can't wish I could remember this guy's name, but man, he was like, he looked like the, uh, the Iraqi God. He, they called him, I, I, I'm my memory's so bad these days, but I remember being in this one area and this guy displaying his Glock, and he was a former Islamic Army of Iraq guy. But all he wanted was, and this was an area just south of uh, Baghdad, along the river, along the uh, Tigris River, and he just wanted to be his local warlord. It was incredible. Great. What years were you in Iraq? October 2006, all the way through the end of 2007. So did the did the long tour, courtesy of the surge. <laughs> yeah, my last embed there was in the spring of 2008, and I was in Mosul, which was the last bastion of the Islamic State of Iraq at that point in yeah. time. And yeah. I was actually on the scene within a half hour of that suicide attack at uh, Combat Outpost Inman, where it was it was actually executed by a former Guantanamo detainee from Qatar. My yeah. the, the only way I found out is because someone pointed me to their video and they're like, "Hey, Bill, they used your pictures," which was just pretty horrific. I, I needed yeah. a shower shower after that one. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah, the surge that was certainly interesting. You know, it kind of back full circle here, right? We were talking about in the in the beginning of this how long we've been in this business. Um, you know, but I think I think Caleb, you were probably still in grade school when Craig and I were running around Iraq. 
Fifth grade, 2005. <laughs> well, you know what? We need new blood like yours to, to carry on for us old Yeah, guys. I mean, talking about the, the next generation of leadership, I mean, it also works two ways here. That's right. It's our next yeah. generation of analytical leadership right here, Caleb Weiss. That's right. That's right. I mean, inspiring papers that, that, I've, that, uh, that I'm working on and publishing and, and, and many more. Absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you very much, Craig. Always a pleasure. We got to get you on soon. Um, you know, you're, you are one of our favorite guests here. I would say you and Edmund Fitton Brown, you probably win the award for most appearances. He's better looking and he's an ambassador and, uh, you and know, he has he's, that, he's British that British accent. accent so yeah, yeah, he's, right? got me, he's got me in all three categories. Yeah, well, you know, that's okay. Um, he doesn't know the Islamic State like you do. That's for sure. So, well, uh, Craig, thanks again for joining us. Caleb, thanks for co-hosting with me. Um, thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Until next time, thank you very much.